Okay, good evening. Let's uh, take our Bibles tonight, turn to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, and uh, just 12 verses of Scripture uh, tonight. I just realized that I've left my glasses in the car, but that's all right. Uh, Isaiah chapter 64, and, and now we're fine. And verse 1, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 12. Isaiah 64 and verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence." For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness, Sion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised thee is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight and we are thankful for your mercies. We're thankful tonight for the privilege that is ours and the liberty that is ours to come into this house of prayer and into this place of worship and to open the book of books and there, Lord, to read those words that are inspired by thy Spirit in old time. And Father, we pray tonight that you would move among us, that you would challenge us, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would bless us and affirm us in the truth of your word. And we pray above all that the Lord Jesus would be honored and glorified by everything we say this evening. May he be exalted, for we ask these things in his precious and worthy name. Amen. Now, in chapter 63 of Isaiah, we discovered a plea from the Israel of God to the God of Israel that he should come to their rescue. And this plea continues on into chapter 64. This is the prayer of the godly remnant 
in exile, the prayer of the Daniels and the Ezekiels and the Nehemiahs and the Zerubbabels, those who were taken off and uh, who were righteous people, and then uh, those who continued along that vein prayed this prayer from the land in captivity. And it was also to be and will be proved to be the prayer of believing Israel during the coming tribulation. Now, chapter 64 excuse me, really continues the plea of chapter 63 with a greater degree of intensity. Here the Jews give God some reason for their help. He, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with reasoning with God in prayer. And that's what they're doing. They're reasoning with God. They're saying, Lord, your word says this. And on the basis of what your word says, shouldn't you do this? And that's the way they're approaching their prayer life uh, before God. God is a reasonable God. In fact, the very outset of this book, does he not say in chapter 1 and verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Let us reason together. Let's have a reasonable discussion. Let's have a, a debate. Let's have a, a, you know, an exchange, a frank exchange of views. We can talk things through with God. I want you to get that. You know, prayers don't have to be intensely formal. They can just be a conversation. In fact, they ought to be a conversation. Prayer is just talking with God. And we'll see some of that here in this chapter. Now, this chapter is outlined in three sections. Verses 1 to 4, we find their appeal. In verses 5 to 7, we find their admission. (coughs) And in verses 8 to the end of the chapter, we find their approach. Notice their appeal in verses 1 to 4. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. So they begin their prayer by saying, O that thou wouldest rend the heavens. And the word rend means to tear apart. Uh, This is the prayer of the revivalists. They were asking God to come down, to flow down in all of his glory, to come among them. You know, earlier in chapter 63 and verse 15, they had prayed, look down from heaven. But now they pray something else, something more. They want more than God just to see their plight. They want to see his face. And later in this prayer, they will acknowledge why it has been that his face has been hidden from them. But for the moment, their prayer is, Lord, show thyself. What a prayer. (coughs) Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that you would break open the heavens, that you would tear them apart. You know, when the Lord Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist. We read, and straightway coming out of the waters, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending like a dove. And that word opened has the same idea that the heavens were torn apart, that God was pouring his blessing down upon the Lord Jesus in that moment. And someday, of course, 
at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, the same thing is going to happen. The heavens are going to rend. They're going to be torn apart. And Christ will come in all his glory. Now notice what it was precisely they were seeking. Three times they stated in those first three verses. At the end of each verse, notice you have the same three words. At thy presence. At thy presence. At thy presence. They were seeking the Lord's presence. You know, when the New Testament scriptures speak of the second coming of the Lord, of the coming of the Lord, the Greek word is parousia. And parousia in the Greek literally means presence. We're waiting for the presence of the Lord. We want him to come and reveal himself. Now, for the godly remnant in Babylon, and indeed for the remnant that will be on the earth just prior to the coming of the Lord, the Lord's descent on Sinai will be their focus. It will be the basis of this prayer. And they're saying, in effect, well, Lord, you came down before. You came down onto Mount Sinai. You came down and met with Moses. And we didn't even ask you to, but you came down anyway. Now we're asking you to come down. Now we want to meet with you. And that moment on Sinai when the mountains smoked and the people were at the bottom and the foothills and they were trembling at the thunder and the lightning and the sounds and, and the sights that were taking place on the summit of the mountain, that moment is etched in, Israel, in the Israelite psyche. Look in Deuteronomy with me, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And remember, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, okay? So this is at the tail end of Moses' ministry, uh, sometime down the line. And notice what he writes. He says, And ye came near, in verse 11, and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only ye heard a voice. So there were sights and there were signs there that really stuck with this nation. Later on in the book of Judges, uh, the Judge Deborah references this same event. In Judges chapter 5 and uh, verse 5, it says, The mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. The mountains melted. And later on, King David likewise references this same event in Psalms chapter 68 and, and the eighth verse of that psalm. Psalm chapter 68 and verse 8, he writes, The earth shook, the heavens also dropped. Notice, at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So they understood that in that moment, on the pinnacle of Sinai, God had revealed himself. He had come in all of his glorious presence, and he had made himself known unto Moses, and by extension, 
unto the nation. Now they want the Lord to do it again. Only this time, they want the Lord to reveal himself to the whole nation, and not just to that nation, but to all the nations, to the whole earth, to make himself known even to their enemies as well as to his own people. Look in Psalm 99, whilst we're in the book of Psalms. It says, the Lord reigneth, let the people, or the peoples, as it is in the Hebrew, it's plural, let the peoples, the nations, tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth, the whole earth, be moved. And tremble they will, and the earth will be moved, it will be shaken on its axis at his coming, because his appearance will instigate their judgment. The godless army gathered at Armageddon will know that their time is up when the heavens are opened and the Lord Jesus descends and they shall know his power and his presence when he comes again. So the Jews of the tribulation period are going to pray this way, even as the Jews of the exile prayed this way prior to their return to the land. That's their appeal. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 64 and notice their admission. Isaiah 64 and verse 5. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is countenance, is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thine name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Now in verse 5, what you have is the conditions set forth that are necessary for God to meet with his people. If God is going to come down, if his presence is going to be realized, well, there are certain conditions that have to be met. And here we see actually the conditions for revival as well, uh, because God is looking for the same things from us as he looked for from the nation of Israel. Now let's be clear about something before we go. If you do have a modern version of the Bible, other than the King James Bible, you may have noticed that verse 5 was a little bit different uh, from the way in which I read it. Uh, for example, the ESV, the English Standard Version, says, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? And so they put a question mark at the end of that verse, and they make it a question. And they suggest that Israel has continued in their sins, and the question is, shall we be saved? And of course, if you're a replacement theologian, that sits very well with you, because then you come back and say, no, you shall not be saved, because you've continued in your sins in rejection of Christ. But there's no linguistic justification for this. Uh, rather, uh, rather than just interpreting or uh, translating the verse, there's an effort there by translators to interpret the verse in keeping with a certain theological bent. 
So rather than messing with the entire meaning of the verse in that way, it might help if we understood the phrase, Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned in the middle of that verse, as to be a parenthesis. Imagine, if you will, that there are brackets around that section, okay? And so there is a general acknowledgement of sin, but primarily this is a setting forth of the conditions of salvation. So it reads like this, Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those, in those first things, is continuance, and we shall be saved. You see the difference? It's an important little distinction, that. (coughs) Now, in other words, it's those initial things, meeting him, committing to his service, remembering him, uh, and serving him, in those things we shall be saved. In fact, the word meet us there uh, means comes to the help of. So the Lord will come to the help of those who rejoice in righteousness and remember his name. He will be their savior, and by grace they shall be saved. However, in the midst of this uh, confession, there is this candid admission. We have sinned. Now, remember that this admission is falling from the lips of Jewish people. That's, that's really critical. Because when you think about Israel and the Jew, their history is one of self-righteousness, isn't it? Righteousness by self-effort, by an attempt to uphold the law. And yet they come to a place, both whilst they are in Babylon and then in future, during the tribulation, where they realize that their woes are self-inflicted and that they have sinned. Now, that they say that at all is remarkable, but that they go into such candor about it in verse 6 is even more remarkable. Look what they say. They said, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, you and I have heard this verse quoted numerous times, unquestionably. Now, very often I have quoted it or referenced it in gospel messages encouraging or discouraging people uh, from any thought of, uh, of good works as a means of salvation. And that's perfectly reasonable. It's a perfectly correct application of that verse. But the thing to remember here is that in the context, this is an acknowledgement by the nation of Israel and the people of that nation, first of all in captivity, then in tribulation, that their woes are self-inflicted, and that they have been righteously judged of God. So they, they, they say, we are all as an unclean thing. What is that unclean thing? Well, it is, in the Hebrew, the face covering that was worn by lepers. And you can imagine there were probably few things as disgusting uh, for a healthy person to come into contact with as a face covering that had previously been worn by a leper. And I'm sure, like me, you have noticed that there has been a profusion of face coverings lying around our streets and parks, and everywhere you go, you find these face coverings. 
and uh, you know it, it's hard to. Uh, I know some people just lose them by accident. I imagine some people chuck them away as well. Uh, but you know we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we have all of these horrible cloths hanging out, and we don't even have leprosy. <laughs> so you can imagine how it felt to encounter something like that that had fallen from the face of a leper. Completely disgusting. And they say all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's menstrual rags. Uh, the menstrual cloth that ladies wore uh, during their period. And so again, that's another unpleasant item that people don't particularly wish to handle. Now they, they're describing, in the usage of those, uh, of those items, they're describing their righteousness. Now these are the Jews. Their rituals. Their ceremonies. They said the emotions that we have been going through, the things that we have been doing, God, to please you, they're like a leper's face, co- a face covering. They're like a menstrual rag. They're completely loathsome before you. You know, here are people who are normally full of religious pride. But you get the idea here that they finally come around to the idea that, guess what? We are sinners. They say we do all fade as a leaf. You think about a dying leaf. Uh, as a leaf begins to die in the autumn time, it loses its strength. It is easily blown from the tree by the autumn wind. Uh, and so sin, we find, has a way of enfeebling us, of weakening us. In fact, the Scripture says that when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We too were like a failing leaf, a dying leaf that was easily blown by the wind of God's judgment. In other words, they had no defense. There was nothing in their corner with which to fight. They had completely given up. They had absolutely surrendered every notion of their own self-righteousness. And they said, Lord, we're filthy and we're without strength. Even our good deeds are tainted by our sins. They would have agreed with Augustus Toplady when he wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And then notice in verse 7, It says, there is none that calleth upon thy name. No wonder God was hiding his face from them. No wonder revival tarries in our land today. There was prayerlessness among them. There was none that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. Let me tell you something. If we were tonight to have some uh, Christian music artist in this church playing a free concert, this church would be packed from front to back. People would pay big money to come in. But when you tell them we're going to have a prayer meeting, well, look at the empty seats. And then we say, why is there no revival? Why isn't God's presence felt among his people anymore? Because there is none that calleth upon my name. 
and that there's none that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. You know, and if you read the stories of revival, you'll find very often that prior to the revival occurring, there was periods of prayerlessness, uh, and there was nothing but deadness uh, until uh, people realized the error of their way and came before the Lord. In the 1859 revival in our homeland in Ulster, one pastor reported, before the revival, our condition was deplorable. We were dead, cold, prayerless, worldly. Two times I tried a prayer meeting with elders, but failed. The people did not only did not only not want to pray, they were almost hostile toward prayer meetings. They thought we were doing fine and that I was unnecessarily disturbing them. Another pastor said, There seemed great coldness and deadness. I had preached the gospel faithfully, earnestly, and plainly for eleven years. Yet it was not known to me that a single individual had been converted. And the third said, The congregation was altogether Laodicean. The spiritual state was depressing and hopeless. You know, if revival is ever going to come to the United Kingdom again, we in the church have to take a long, hard look at ourselves and admit to our own coldness and our own deadness, and admit, as, ca- as the captives admitted, that for this reason, as it were, for this reason, thou hast hid thy face from us. This was actually something that the Jews had been pre-warned about. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. This people will rise up and go a whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they go to be among them and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will, notice, hide my face from them. They shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought, in that they have turned unto other gods. So now in Isaiah... They finally put their finger on the pulse of the problem, and their, uh, their inability to hear anything from God was as a consequence of their own idolatry and rebelliousness and sin. And so they recognize that they have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. There is nothing that they can put before God that will earn them the slightest bit of merit in his sight. Now here's the question. If they lacked merit, what were they left with? Where their only hope was mercy. If you have no merit, your only hope is mercy. Notice their approach now in verses 8 through 12. Isaiah 64, verse 8. They said, But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, 
neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, that's the temple, where our fathers praised thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Now notice in verses 8 and 9, the basis now of their hope in God. They appeal to him in respect to his fatherhood, his workmanship, and his covenant. Those were the three bases upon which they approached him and on which they wanted God to respond. They said, but now, O Lord, thou art our father. Now, remember what I said to you, I think it was last week. This is a communal prayer. And they viewed God as the father of their nation. And rightly so. He is the father of their nation. But what they did not do was relate to God in a personal way. That happened when the Lord Jesus came and he taught us to pray our Father which art in heaven. And he connected us to God and his fatherhood in a way that was very different from that which was previously experienced by the Jews of old. So really the Lord was correcting their view of the fatherhood of God. They saw God as the father of the great multitude and not the father of an individual. Jesus said not just the multitude, but also the individual. He is your heavenly Father. Now, on the basis then of his love for them, for their nation, they came and they approached him. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 7 for a moment. They had good reason to approach him as the father of the nation, because after all, he had chosen them. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look also in Psalm 103. Beautiful psalm. Psalm 103. It begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. But uh, you uh, get uh, down, further down the passage. And uh, it talks about how the Lord has been uh, fatherlike uh, unto them. And uh, he says, uh, as a father pitieth his children, in verse 13, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. As a father pitieth his children, so does the Lord pity them that fear him. And so on that basis, they come and they say, Lord, pity us. You know, that's salvation, friends. When you say, I have nothing to bring you, God. I have nothing to offer. I have no works. There is no ceremony. There is no amount of religion. Uh, there's nothing that I can possibly lay at your feet that you would accept. The only thing I can hope for is that you would pity me, that you would have mercy on me, that you will reach out to me in grace. Now, that's salvation. 
They said in Psalms and Isaiah 64, We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all the work of thy hand. Now they're approaching him on the strength of his workmanship in their lives. In other words, they're placing themselves entirely at his disposal. You know, you think about a piece of clay. I always love it when we talk about pottery in this part of the world, because everybody knows about pottery. People in Stoke and Trent know about pottery. So you know how it is with a piece of clay? It's, it's completely malleable. It's, you know, the, the potter can do with it whatever he wills. He puts it on his wheel. He can make a vase out of it. He can make a plate out of it. He can make a cup out of it. Uh, he can do whatever he wants with it. It's his choice. The clay is simply laid before him as his servant. And that's what they were doing. They said, Lord, pity us. You're the potter. We're the clay. We're laying ourselves on your wheel, as it were, and we are completely dependent upon you for anything that happens in our lives. You know, they're completely submissive to the Lord's will. And then finally, they approach him on the basis of his covenants with them. Notice verse 9. Be not wroth very sorrow, Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Now notice that phrase, all. Again, it's a national prayer. It's not an individual prayer. It's a communal pr- prayer. We are all thy people. And here's the thing. They've acknowledged again their iniquity. But what they understand is this, is that their sin cannot undo God's promises. Now that's, that's a beautiful truth to take home tonight. Now that's not to say that, you know, we're free to live however we please. But it is to say that the promises God made unconditionally to Abraham and to David rested upon his word and not their ways. Look with me in Psalm 105. Psalm 105. We've just been in Psalm 103. Let's look just a couple of Psalms over to Psalm 105 where the psalmist references the Abrahamic covenant. And notice what he says here in Psalm 105 with reference to that promise that was made or that series of promises that were made uh, to Abraham. Psalm 105, verse 8, it says, He hath remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. Now look, the people of Israel had sinned long before they got to this point in history. You go back to the times of the judges. (laughs) They are involved in all kinds of apostasy. Their wickedness is, in in some instances, are absolutely unimaginable. You've got the the terrible incident where one man cuts up his concubine into 12 parts and sends her body parts around to Israel. I mean, terrible things were happening. Jephthah is foolish foul. Other things that took place there were completely contrary to God's law. And yet here we come, you know, along the line, timeline of history to David, and he says, nope, it's still standing. I made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac. It's a promise that stands forever. It's a promise that lasts for a thousand generations. I intend to keep that promise. I will give the land of Canaan to you as an inheritance. 
Look at a few psalms back, Psalm 89. We've read this psalm numerous times in the course of these studies. This time it's a reference not to the Abrahamic covenant, but to the Davidic covenant. Psalm 89 and verse 30. (coughs) Watch this. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now watch the next word. Nevertheless. That's a really important word there, isn't it? Nevertheless. My loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. So he says their faithfulness might fail, but my faithfulness will not fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. And so they come to the Lord on the basis of his fatherhood, on the basis of his workmanship, but on the basis also of his covenants. And they say, Lord, you've made certain promises to us. Guess what? We are your people. We've sinned. We're surrendered now. We're completely committed to your will. We are your people. Now, Lord, claim us. Come down among us. Make your presence known in our midst. Finally, in Psalm in Isaiah 64, the last two verses, it closes with a prophetic observation of the land. The land and the cities of the land are seen to be desolate, a wilderness. Psalm 60, or Isaiah 64 Verse 10, thy holy cities are a wilderness. Sion is a wilderness. Jerusalem's a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praise thee is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Now, clearly when Isaiah wrote this, none of those things were true. Remember, Isaiah was writing before Nebuchadnezzar came and burned the temple and besieged Jerusalem. So they're not true in his time. So what is, he, what is he saying here? How does he, what is, what's going on here? What's going on here is that with prophetic foresight, he is telling us what the exiles will say after Nebuchadnezzar has come, after the temple has been burned, after the city has fallen, and after the land has been pillaged and left. And that, those events are decades away from this time of writing. And then the prayer closes with a question in verse 12, a lament of sorts. Wilt thou refrain refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very very sore? You know, in view of their helpless and hopeless state, they say, God, are you really going to refuse to help us? When your word has made promises to us as a nation, are you now going to abandon us? Are you going to forsake us? Are you going to leave us to our own devices? You know, given that they are in dire straits, would he reject their prayers? Well, the final two chapters will give the answer to that question. And that's where we'll pick up next week. But let me say this. Our church, really, when you think about it, is no different from other churches in which, sadly, the prayer meeting is often the most neglected meeting of our week. The meeting that should have the highest attendance is, in fact, as it is with most churches, the meeting with the lowest 
attendance. And that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for those people who do not come and join with us. It's a tragedy for us all. You know, the great evangelist Gypsy Smith, who made such a lasting impact upon this very city, said when he was asked about the secret of revival that one should go home, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, then pray, O Lord, revive everything inside this circle. How ready it was. Revival begins with me, begins with you. And so if there's no revival, that's a tragedy for us. If the prayer meetings are neglected, that's a tragedy for our church. For although God has certainly been gracious to bless us over the years, one wonders how greater the blessing might have been if we had all been serious about prayer. And it's a tragedy also for our nation. Revival really tarries because God's people have sinned. It's not because the world is doing what the world has always done. The world has always been in opposition to God. No, the problem doesn't lie with the worldling. The problem lies with the Christian, with the church. Now, I know to a large degree I'm preaching tonight to the choir, okay, uh, because you folks are, are faithful to come out uh, each, meet, each midweek meeting and prayer meeting. You can't. But even so, is it not true even for ourselves that you can be here in body, but your spirit is miles away. Can it not be that you come even to this prayer meeting and you can't wait for it to end, for the final amen to come? You know, in times past, thankfully we don't see so much of this now, but in times past we would have seen where I taught the Bible study and then somebody would get up and leave because they didn't want to stay for the prayer. And if you asked them, they'd say, well, I only come for the Bible study. Well, what a tragedy that is. And can it not be that you're listening to others praying and you're hoping that whoever was asked to close the meeting in prayer, maybe I say to William, will you close the meeting in prayer? And, and you're praying, oh, William, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, William. I want to get home. I've got other things to do, other things to be attending to. Well, if that's the case, and I think we've probably all been there at times in prayer meetings, I'm not pointing the finger at you and neglecting my own spirit in this respect. But if that's the case, no wonder we don't sense God's presence as we ought. No wonder when we're not honestly and sincerely seeking his face. Someday, the Lord is going to come down. That's where they began, that thou wouldest come down. Someday, he is going to come down. Someday the skies are going to rip wide open. And Jesus will appear first for his church and then later with his church as he steps feet, foot upon the earth. But in that day that he appears for us, you know, I don't think we will necessarily wish that we had attended more meetings or heard more sermons or sang more hymns. But sometimes I think we will wish that we had prayed more, that we had spent more time in the Lord's presence before he came down. I wonder, do we need to admit, with the godly remnant of Israel 
past and future, we have sinned. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Oh, the Lord, it searches us tonight and it finds us falling short. For we must confess, as Israel of old confessed, that you have hidden your face from us at times because of our prayerlessness, because no man sought to take hold of thee. We think of Jacob, Lord, who wrestled with the angel. And he said, I will not let thee go unless you bless me. Lord, he laid hold of thee. Father, help us to lay hold of thee. Help us to call upon your name. Help us to be earnest in prayer. May the prayer meeting be far more exciting than the teaching time. May the prayer meeting know more of your presence than the preaching hour. May we sense your power as we sit before your throne more than if we sit in the pew listening to some preaching or teaching. God, speak to us tonight through your word. Correct us. Reprove us. And cause us to, as Israel did, surrender as clay to the potter's wheel. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.